0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, about a year ago, I was introduced to a film that takes place in the events kind of surrounding World War II, a film called A Hidden Life. It's an absolutely beautiful film. Um, it's one of those movies that you call a film because it is a little bit, you know, it's kind of fancy and kind of whatever, but it, it was really good. It was, it was a really good movie. Uh, and the, the, the title of the film was based off of this quote from author George Eliot. I have this quote on the screen. George Eliot writes, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived a faithfully hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. What she's saying there is that our lives are built on the billions of small decisions made by untold millions who preceded us, and that our lives are so much better than what they could be owing to hidden, unseen, unnamed lives. That have gone before us. This is true of every element of our life, that things are better for us, not on the basis of the people that we know, but because of the small billions of decisions from these billions of unnamed people that have preceded us. And I couldn't help but also think about the hidden lives that precede us spiritually. Every soul that is in this room is here believing in Jesus because of small faithfulness of hidden saints over years and years and years, which results in you here believing and knowing the Lord Jesus today. I mean, One of my favorite examples of this is my great-grandfather was a guy named Marvin Weathers. He just appeared out of the dirt in Woodruff uh, in the early 20th century. And he, is a, he was a man who worked hard, who cared for his family, who was faithful for decades and decades and decades and decades. And I am downstream from the ministry of Mar- Marvin Weathers, a guy that I feel certain you've never heard of. A man whose tomb is unvisited and unknown, a hidden life. I think of the, the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13 of the mustard seed. Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. And yet, what does he say? Becomes of that seed. It flowers and blossoms and grows into a tree where untold numbers can shade in its branches. Today, we're going to look at the story of Paul planting the church at Corinth. And when you think about the church at Corinth. Your mind probably goes, if you're familiar with the Bible, to the letter of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These two letters written by the very same Apostle Paul who planted this church. and it's These incredible letters with, with one of the most beautiful chapters on love in the scriptures. This incredible teaching on the spiritual gifts and the resurrection and life as the body of Jesus. Contributions found only in these letters. And yet, Here's what Paul tells us about his first coming to the city of Corinth. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul tells the Corinthians that when he first arrived there, that he was with them in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Paul arrives in this huge, prosperous, populous city, a city that's a city in all of the ways you think of a city being a city. And Paul says that he feels small, or we might say, Hidden, weak, in fear, and in trembling. Now, in our passage today, we're going to see the church at Corinth planted. We're going to, see, we're going to meet a pair of incredible new characters, this incredible couple. They've become kind of a, a low-key heroes of mine after reading this chapter. And in this passage, we also see Jesus give Paul assurance that though Paul is small and hidden, his work isn't for naught because Jesus is big. So let's see how the gospel takes root in the city, and let's see what kind of encouragement we can draw for Ridgewood today. Let's look at Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, Paul has been on this uh, second missionary journey, where he has left Jerusalem and he has made his way to cities that he has visited before, where he shared the gospel before, planted churches before, and making his way to new cities. We'll have a map on the screen that we've referred to each week. It's always helpful for me to see and kind of picture exactly where Paul is going. So I know it's kind of hard to see for the folks in the back, but if you look down here at the bottom right corner, that's where Jerusalem is located, that big blue area is the Mediterranean Sea. Paul makes his way north, then he goes west, and then he goes south. Last week we saw Paul in the city of Athens. He's gone a little bit west over to the port city of Corinth. The gospel takes root for the first time in Europe, in, uh, in the city of Philippi, in chapter 16. Paul makes Jesus known there, and then Paul is subsequently run off by those who oppose him. Then Paul moves on to Thessalonica. He's accused of turning the world upside down, which is excellent and, and exactly right. Paul does do that, and he gets run off. And then he moves, moves on to Berea. There are those who are in the Berean synagogue they receive the word, unlike the Thessalonian synagogue, But the shadow movement that has kind of sprung up in response to Paul finds Paul there, and they run him off once again. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that Paul makes his way into the city of Athens, that he departs from Timothy and Silas. And it's kind of a strategic move. They set Paul apart, maybe so that he's not found. Paul makes his way to the city of Athens. He's disturbed by the idol worship he sees there. And he confronts the Athenians with the true story of the whole world, the reality of Jesus Today, Paul moves west to the ancient city of Corinth. Now, if Athens, we talked about last week that Athens is, I mean, it's hard to overstate the importance of the city of Athens from a historical standpoint. It was the intellectual center of the world at that time, and in some ways, is the intellectual center of human history. And if Athens is kind of like the Boston of the ancient world, you know, with MIT and and Harvard and, and other smart places, If Athens was like Boston, then Corinth was like New York City. A hustling and bustling, alive city full of commerce and influence and success. And so from a strategic standpoint, it actually made a lot of sense for Paul to go there to plant a church. I mean, first, it was gigantic. It's not as big as Ephesus, which we'll see next week, but by ancient standards, it was huge. The city of Corinth was gigantic and incredibly populous. It was also diverse. There was a vast mix of cultures. We'll see, I mean, already in verse 4, it mentions that Paul is working amongst Jews and Greeks. There was a significant Jewish population, which was a sign of its bigness and its diversity. It was also really accessible. It was a port city, and so it was therefore influential. There were a lot of people that were coming and going in and out of the city of Corinth. And so in Paul's mind, this is a great place to expose people to the gospel so that they can carry it with them to the next stop. Again, yeah, it makes sense for Paul to want to establish a church here from a strategic standpoint. But there's something else about Corinth. Corinth was gross. It was a deeply immoral city. I mean, the, the, the word Corinth became a verb as a, as a synonym for immorality. To go about Corinthian inging, what was not said quite like that, but something like that, right? To, to go about it in that way is a synonym for immorality. And not only that, but Corinth became used as a synonym for harlot. And so Paul, when he makes his way into the city, he knows what he's walking into. A proud, prosperous, immoral city. And he knows what he's going to call people to do. Repent and believe the gospel. The things that you're giving yourself to, you've got to turn from that and turn to the crucified Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And Paul's intimidated. He says, I came to you in weakness. Fear and trembling. Now, I think about uh, in 2013, I was a part of a mission trip to Copenhagen and Denmark. Has anybody ever been to Denmark or Copenhagen, perchance? Uh, okay, a few of us. It's an absolutely beautiful city. I mean, it, it, one of the things that struck me was everyone there was like a fashion model. They were all, everybody was 6'2 to the 6'5 range. Everybody was beautiful. They were all so well-dressed and so attractive. The city was big and it was historic and it was absolutely intimidating. Because we knew that the ministry that we were doing and the gospel we were preaching and the life that Jesus calls us to was fundamentally different from the lives that the people of Copenhagen were living. We could feel the different values like in the air. Part of what we were doing there was helping this church minister to people as the city through this big citywide party. And it went exactly as how you probably imagine a citywide party in the streets of Copenhagen to go. It was completely decadent. And if I'm honest, I mean, our work felt so small. We felt absolutely swallowed up by the, the immorality and the, the, the bigness and the diversity of Copenhagen. We were intimidated. And so I get what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, that it came to Corinth in weakness, fear, and much trembling. He arrives there and he feels small. Now the text also tells us that Paul arrives and he takes up tent making. In fact, it seems like Paul has already been in the practice of this business of tent making. He says that he's going to the Sabbath to persuade Jews and Greeks to the synagogue, rather to persuade Jews and Greeks every Sabbath. That is every Saturday. So Paul's working, you know, Monday to Friday, making tents so that he can afford to sustain himself as he's in the city. And he goes and he shares the gospel on Saturdays. He says that he is going to persuade Jews and Greeks. More on that in a second. Now, Paul's working during the week to live. He's doing ministry in his off time. He's what some people might call a, a bivocational minister, doing bivocational ministry. Paul's willing to do what's needed to survive and do ministry, making tents. I mean, literally crafting poles and taking animal hides to create shelters. And, and I deliberated including this because this detail, it doesn't contribute anything to the sermon necessarily, but it's just so good that I, I wanted to draw your attention to this. I mean, this can't be a coincidence, If you're familiar with the Jewish scriptures, what do you think of when you hear tent? Someone who is Jewish, who who grew up, you know, deeply aware of the Jewish scriptures, what came to their mind when they thought about a tent? It would have been the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the place where God's spirit dwelled in animal skin in the midst of his people, right? To a Jew, someone like Paul, I mean, they would have thought about the literal Poles in animal hides that became the place where God met his people. And it says that Paul is a tent maker. Paul, the one we've seen plant churches where the Holy Spirit inhabits people. The church, the place where the Spirit of God fills animal skins, if you catch my meaning. Paul is a tent maker in more ways than one. And I just think that's an awesome detail and it can't be an accident. And we're told also that Paul is living with a fellow believing, tent-making couple, and here we're introduced to a pair of just legends. Priscilla and Aquila, introduced in verse 2. We're told that Priscilla and Aquila, they come from Rome because of a disturbance in Rome. Emperor Claudius has commanded all the Jews to leave the city. It's probably what's taking place here, is that the Jews, the gospel has made its way to Rome, and it's causing a controversy amongst Jews and Claudius says, I don't want to deal with your intramural debates about your messiahs. And so he flushes all of them out of Rome. And and the reason that that's actually a really important detail is because up to this point, we've only seen the gospel going with people like Barnabas and people like Paul. But what it shows us is that the gospel has exceeded even their reach. That the gospel has made its way to Rome apart from the direct work of people like Paul and Barnabas. This thing is full-blown viral at this point. Priscilla and Aquila have become believers in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is moving early Christians all over this area, and it has been covered up by the good news that Christ is the risen Messiah. So Paul gets to Corinth, and he, he happens upon Priscilla and Aquila, who are both Christians and also tent makers. It tells us that Paul lives with them and, and moves into their household to help participate in the process of making tents. And, and what I love about Priscilla and Aquila, what I love about these two is they are such an example for us on what it looks like to do low-key ministry. They're here in our passage this week, and we're going to see them in our passage next week. They actually go with Paul from Corinth to the city of Ephesus. We later find out that when Paul plants the church at Ephesus, where do they gather for worship? At Priscilla and Aquila's house. The church at Ephesus is planted in their living room. And they're mentioned just a handful of other times in the New Testament. There's places like Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We won't look at those. But what we find out from those scriptures about Priscilla and Aquila are two really important attributes. And you know what? I would encourage you just to write this down. What we find out about Priscilla and Aquila are two really important attributes. We find out that they're hospitable, number one, and we find out that they're faithful. Here, they're hosting Paul. But elsewhere we know that they actually go on to host the church in Ephesus. The living room is their gathering place. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter written 15 to 20 years after these events, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila who are still around the church at Ephesus, still hosting the church after all of these years. Hospitable and faithful. Playing the long game. And something else that's also really interesting to me about them is that more often than not, when they're listed in the Scriptures, they're not listed as Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila being the husband's name and Priscilla being the wife's name. It is Priscilla and Aquila, which would not have been normal during Paul's time. It seems like there's something noteworthy about this woman Priscilla that the authors of the Scriptures want to draw our attention to. Now, I mentioned this in my prayer a few moments ago that we're a Southern Baptist church, and if you, um, if one of your hobbies is keeping up with denominational, you know, ins and outs on Twitter, may- maybe you saw some things about the SBC this week. I mean, it really is an important moment in the history of our convention. The SBC voted to disfellowship a few churches around the issue of women in ministry. Southern Baptists stated strongly their conviction that the office of pastor is reserved for men. And Ridgewood, in full agreement with that decision made this week, we, we also agree that the Bible's answer regarding the office of pastor is that the office of pastor is reserved exclusively for men. And, and, I, and I know for a fact, I mean, that many people hear that and they get frustrated at that because they hear, what, what they hear, what, the, what they sort of internalize with that is that women can't be in ministry. Many folks hear that and they say, Paul must have hated women because he restricted women from ministry, or Baptists hate women, or the Bible is against women. Because women can't do ministry. And there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll do that surely at another point. But you know what? I think that that response actually shows us, that our frustration with that actually shows us. I think it actually shows us how impoverished is our idea of ministry. Priscilla and Aquila's ministry, and specifically Priscilla's, was not headlining conferences or writing books or pastoring churches. It was long term, low key relational faithfulness. We think ministry equal signs, large platform, speaking at conferences, being famous, big Twitter following. But Priscilla and Aquila did not have any of those headshots on posters where they were featured as speakers at the next greatest big thing, right? No, they opened their home for decades for Paul the Apostle, for Paul. And for the founding of the church at Ephesus, for untold hundreds of people, year after year after year. And so ministry is not this, these 35 minutes of of me up here speaking. Ministry is crockpots and lunch after church. It's braving awkwardness and following up on prayer requests. It's building slowly over the course of decades with some one or some two or some three. I mean, what we're going to see next week in our passage is we meet another character, Apollos, a character that I deeply identify with. He's a character that my my mom used to tell me that I had a lot of zeal, but not a lot of sense. And Apollos, I remember her distinctly telling me that more than one occasion. And Apollos is a character that we would describe as someone with a lot of zeal, but not a lot of sense. What we're going to see in the passage next week is that Apollos is is preaching. He's he's, he's sharing the scriptures, he's shucking corn, and he's getting after it. And who hears Apollos, who who thinks highly of Apollos, who sees his gifts, who appreciates his zeal, who invites them into their home to help him sharpen his understanding of the scriptures A hair, It is Priscilla and Aquila. So don't reduce ministry to this, to what I'm doing right now. This is the most public moment in the life of our church. It is the most visible and obvious aspect of ministry. Yes, I, I get that. But I promise you. There are thousands, thousands of little encounters and bits of service and burden-bearing and gospelizing and correcting that are taking place all over Greer, Taylors, and Lyman this week. That is the faithfully hidden ministry of Ridgewood. Full living rooms and dinner tables and one anothering in Jesus' name by men, women, young and old. To be clear, the Bible restricts the office of pastor to men, but the Bible doesn't restrict ministry to pastors. And I think our discomfort with the Bible's teaching tells us a lot about ourselves, specifically that we have an emaciated, weak view of ministry that is foreign to the picture that Acts gives us. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, for I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul's going to the Sabbath to persuade. Every Sabbath, every Saturday, he's working during the week, doing ministry in the off time, tent making, kind of operating as a, a kind of bivocational minister, we might say. And then we're told that Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul, probably bringing a financial gift A bit of support so that Paul's ministry can go from just being done and taking place on the weekends to actually taking place during the work week. Instead of ministry only on Saturdays, he's free to do more ministry more often because of this gift that they bring. Paul references it in Corinthians and Philippians. He spent time working, notice in verse 4, to persuade and reason with both Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul's going to them and he's like, the temple. It's amazing. The, The temple, it was a shadow and it pointed ultimately to Jesus. And then he goes to Isaiah 53, and he's like the suffering servant. I mean, he's bearing the sin of the people. That's Jesus on the cross, cursed for us. Can't you see it? Don't you see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures? In Corinthians 1, Paul famously says that he didn't spend his time in a rhetoric, but rather preached Christ crucified. We sometimes mistake that to mean that we're only to preach the gospel and that we don't take time to reason and sit patiently with people's questions and persuade them. But that's actually what Paul does here. So when he talks about preaching Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 1, it's not as opposed to persuasion and reason because that's his practice here in the scripture. What Paul's calling them, or what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 is a kind of proud, loud, very much not hidden kind of public oration. And Paul says, I didn't come to do any of that. I came to tell you about Jesus, to persuade you that he's the crucified king who died for sins. And yet Paul is met with hardness of hearts. So verse 8, it says, he shakes off his garments. It's like Jesus is teaching. You have to shake the dust off your feet. He shakes off his garments and he says, your blood be on your own hands. You are on the hook for your rejection of the gospel. I'm going to the Gentiles. And so Paul goes next door for seven. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, which is just Great. He's preaching the gospel at the synagogue. They reject it, and he literally goes next door. And and Paul says in Romans 11, verse 1, that I preached the gospel to the Gentiles, hoping that it would make the Jews jealous, that they would believe. So we see Paul doing exactly that. You're not going to believe? I'll go to your neighbors, the Gentiles. And what happens? Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Notice that belief is united to baptism in this passage. There's a lot of question about the household baptisms. But belief is the thing that accompanies baptism, even here in this scripture. The result is that many Corinthians hear and believe and are baptized. And yet Paul, even after this fruit, is still in need of reassurance. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed it a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now remember, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that he comes in weakness and fear and intimidation. And graciously he receives a vision from the Lord Jesus. Verse 9. He's given two commands. What are they? Don't be afraid and don't be silent. He says, You've come afraid, you've come intimidated. Don't be. He says here, the temptation is to clam up, to be silent, to to scale back on the the preaching of the gospel. He says, don't let that be the case. And then he gives two bases for these commands. Verse 10, two things. Jesus says, Paul, I am with you. And secondly, Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus himself tells Paul that Jesus himself accompanies Paul on this mission. Though Paul feels struck down and persecuted, he is not abandoned, nor will Jesus allow Paul to be destroyed. And then he tells Paul, Keep at it because I have many people in this city. Now, one of my favorite things uh, that I get to do in pastoral ministry is wrestle with people through really thick and sticky questions. Don't always have answers, but I enjoy the wrestling, right? Hopefully, we arrive at some answers. Maybe, hopefully. But one question that that I've often heard, and I've heard a lot of people sort of raise this, is they've wondered, if God is in control of things, and if God is the author of this story and he's completely in control of everything, why do we do things like pray, right? Because if God is in control, isn't the prayer kind of pointless? Because isn't God going to do the things that God wants to do? Or if the Bible teaches that God elects some people to salvation, that he has some marked for salvation, why bother with things like, evangelism because if god's going to save some people isn't he just going to save the people what what does it matter what we do or what we don't do this passage actually helps speak to that exact question jesus tells paul don't be silent why he says i have people here i have people that i have marked for salvation And so if god ordains the end he is also going to ordain the means he is inviting Paul to plant the seed so that God can give the growth. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have people who are mine who are yet to believe, and you are the way that I plan for them to hear. So don't stop speaking. Paul's not told, he's not given a list of names Jack from down the street, and Billy the butcher, and, and Johnny the, 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 the milk guy, the mailman, whatever. He's not given a list of names. He's not told who they are. He's told that they're there. And Paul's responsibility is to not be silent, and it is to preach the gospel. And it's amazing. I mean, the Bible teaches that God has marked some for salvation, and yet how will those folks believe? Through us. And I just love that Jesus meets Paul in this. That Jesus sees Paul in his weakness and his fear and his trembling. And the kind of Lord Jesus that we serve is a reassuring and patient Lord Jesus. He goes to Paul. He says, you feel small, but i got great news for you. I am big. I am with you. And I've got people I'm going to save. And all I'm asking you to do is not to be silent and not to be afraid. Verse 11, I love this. It produces a kind of grace-fueled grit in Paul. It tells us that he stays for 18 months. This is the longest stint we have record of Paul serving anywhere. He's emboldened by this to plant roots and get after it. Then in verses 12 through 17, we see the promise that Jesus gives him, actually borne out for Paul. Let's look at those verses. But when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, which is great. I mean, the irony, when Paul's about to speak, he's suddenly silenced because of the Lord's intervention. When Paul's about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But but Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So like we've seen happen, the Jews make a united attack on Paul and they bring him before the tribunal. It's ho-hum for Paul at this point, going before tribunals. This happened several times already in the book of Acts. He's preaching a foreign law, he's, he's, he's persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, he stirs up opposition, but what happens? Well, the proconsul Galio says that this is a dispute among Jews, this is intramural. Remember that they still think of the Christian movement as being a movement within Judaism. And so he says, I'm going to leave that to you to sort that out, you don't need to bring that before me. And what's important about this is once again, a legal precedent is set for allowing the gospel to be preached. And we see that Jesus is actually making good in his promise to Paul by intervening in these events. In verse 17, we're told that Sosthenes, poor guy, he's the ruler of the synagogue who apparently stirred all of this up. He's beaten by the anti-Semitic impulse that's present in the Gentiles. They beat Sosthenes. And Galileo turned a blind eye. Jesus indeed protects Paul, and he actually uses the local governing authorities to do so. Now, as you read this passage and we, and we think about all of these kind of incredible events, and we ask ourselves, what kind of encouragement can we get from this for Ridgewood Church in 2023 in Greer? As we reflect on the circumstances of Paul's arrival in the city and relate, feeling intimidated. As we reflect on the vision given by the Lord Jesus where Paul's given assurance. As we reflect on the example of Priscilla and Aquila who are hospitable and play the long game. I can't help but think that the encouragement to us from this passage is just this. It is a call to small faithfulness, to faithfully hidden ministries. Like Paul, we have the gospel, the one true story of the whole world. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. We have received the same message of Christ crucified, and we've been given the same spirit that indwelled Paul. The heart of Paul's ministry, the good news of the gospel, we too possess... And though Paul, intimidated, can undertake this work faithfully, calling people to repent and believe, we have all of the same utilities at our disposal that Paul had. Like Paul, we have the gospel. And like Paul, we too have assurance. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And i got great news for you, disciples. All authority belongs to me. All nations will be baptized into my name, and everywhere you go for all times, I go with you, Jesus says. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Colossians 3 verse 1, talk about a hidden life. He says that, Christian, our life is hidden with Christ and God. We're in, like, twice as deep. We are hidden With Christ in God. And as long as Christ is welcomed in the presence and joy of the Father, Christian, you are welcomed there. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have assurance. There is nowhere we go that is apart from the Lord's presence with us. And we know that like Corinth, God has people in our city marked for salvation. Calvinists are the best evangelists. Because we have assurance that at any point, We could be the means by which Jesus saves his elect because he is really big and really good at this. And the only thing that is pressing on us is faithfulness. And like Priscilla and Aquila, we have living rooms. I just ask you, what could small faithfulness over the course of decades, what could that yield? The reality is is that most of us will live hidden lives and we will fill an unknown tomb. What could God do with small faithfulness over the course of years and years and years? That's not to say that we shouldn't go do great things for God. Yes, we should, like William Carey said, you know, do great things, dare great and dangerous things for Jesus. Go to scary hard places and push yourself and have lofty ambitions for Jesus' namesake. That might be a calling on some of us. Maybe some of us are incredibly gifted and we're given a wide range. Yes. But the reality is, is that most of us will have a kind of mustard seed existence. You feel small and ordinary and hidden? Maybe that's the point. Maybe we can attach ourselves to the legacy of the likes of Priscilla and Aquila. Attach ourselves to the legacy of the Lord Jesus who became small for us. The one by whom and for whom every molecule exists was born in Bethlehem, the smallest of towns, to an unwed mother, to experience the smallness of human life, to give us access to God eternally. Smallness is how Jesus turned the world upside down. He he uses our smallness in opening our homes and cranking the crockpots and filling our tables and scattering our word, scattering his word in our homes rather. I think the call for us is small faithfulness. This could look like gently correcting someone over coffee. This could look like grieving with a suffering saint. This could look like patiently sharing the gospel with a spouse for years. This could look like reading a book with somebody who's struggling with questions. This could look like, though being intimidated, initiating with an unbelieving friend to share the gospel. How could we give our life away in small bits and pieces like this? I mean, how could the Lord use our small faithfulness. I think of a story of a a woman, I've shared this before, a a woman named Miss Roper in my home church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Y'all never heard of Miss Roper, but Miss Roper for years. We're talking four or five decades taught K-5 Sunday school. It's it's incredible. I I can't think of doing anything for four or five decades, much less teaching kindergartners. Week after week after week, I mean, how many children were impacted by that? Incredible small faithfulness. There's no conferences or, or memoirs that Ms. Roper has contributed to, but goodness, I mean, that is it. That's the small faithfulness of, of people like Priscilla and Aquila. And honestly, speaking really honestly, I mean, this is a word for me. Personally, I mean, everything at, at every turn tells me that my value in ministry is how many faces I'm talking to. Or how many things I'm invited to speak at. And honestly, the temptation is real for me to buy that. And I'm getting to the, to the age where life isn't out in front of me all that much anymore. I mean, this is kind of what things are going to be for me. There's no more wondering what, I'm gonna, what it's going to look like when I grow up or what's going to be the size of my impact. I kind of I have the answer to that. And in my bad days, if I'm honest, it gets to me. I hear a voice in my head, it's my own flesh or the enemy or whatever, saying, your impact looks a lot more modest than you used to think it would be. But what I've come to believe in my bones and what I've returned to daily is that the ministry we're called to is hidden and mustard seed and scope. Don't underestimate what Jesus does through his gospel plus long game grit. Let me speak to the fathers for just a second. That small faithfulness is the whole thing for us. My oldest son uh, will be 10 this year, which marks the transition from like I'm on I'm on the the downhill portion of this, the latter half of my life with my son. The window is fleeting, and every moment it's evaporating. And being a dad is awesome, and dads are awesome, and and I love being a dad, and I love my kids. But the reminder to bring the gospel and bring that grit and bring that small faithfulness home with us is needed I mean and we need to remind ourselves that this is the game everyday faithfulness that has a cumulative effect over years and years of years reading the Bible story when people are burping and and, and picking at each other and not paying attention it's it's sharing the gospel with your kids when you're on the way to go get an ice cream and they're completely ignoring you. I mean, all of this, all of these things that we know and that we feel, press on, dads, so and so and so and so and so in hope as if there's no one else in the world that can fill your shoes because there isn't and so and so some more because small faithfulness is the calling, dads. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Hear me say that the invitation for you is also an invitation to a hidden life. A life hidden with Christ and God, knowing Him and being known forever. Maybe you're marked for salvation. You know how we know? Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. I mean, this is our whole thing, man. It's, it's the good news of Jesus. He died for our sin. He offers us forgiveness and new life in him. Your past doesn't matter. He wants to make you new. It doesn't matter if you're knee deep in Corinthianing. Jesus offers pardon, free grace to all who receive him, and then he grants you freedom of new life in him. And we believe that in our guts and in our bones, and we invite you to know and believe on him the next few minutes, we're going to take some time to pray just in in response to some of the things that we've heard. I'd encourage you to pray and ask the Spirit to show you and and sort of mark out for you where it is that he's calling you to small faithfulness. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, could you pray that God would open your eyes to say, would you pray that you would confess your sin and ask Jesus for forgiveness, that you could be given eternal life and hope forever in him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you came to us, and we have hope in you only because of your grace and mercy to us, and we pray, Jesus, for strength. We pray for that small hidden faithfulness and pray that we would be open handed and generous and that we'd play the long game. And that though we feel small and our contributions feel small, and though our peers pastor bigger churches, Lord Jesus, would you help us to not buy any of it and to believe the incredible news that through smallness, Lord Jesus, your bigness is made known? And we pray that you would use our efforts. That you would use our sewing and you would use our work for your name's sake. And also pray, Lord Jesus, for any folks who are here who have not yet believed, we pray, God, that you would open their heart and that they would see the glory of the gospel and believe. Pray this in Jesus' name.